a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. The first part of today's study is going to be the same Bible study we did in our new class at Fairview this past Sunday morning, in case you weren't there. And in case you're not aware yet, we have started a new Bible study class at Fairview. We call it Standing Firm. We're meeting in room 209, 209. It's in the Family Life Center there at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle, right next to the pastor's study, actually, in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet at 1015 every Sunday morning, and we would love for you to join us there. So if you're not in Bible study on Sunday morning, come check it out. You may remember, if you watched the video last week, uh, we did an overview of the life of Joseph last week, Joseph the son of Jacob, and we walked through the final 14 chapters of Genesis, beginning in chapter 37, walking through all the way to the end of the book in chapter 50. And I'm not sure, I really don't remember if I actually used the word providence in that study last Sunday. I don't remember using it. If I did, it was just kind of popped up. I I didn't intentionally use it. But it turns out that the life of Joseph is a beautiful example of the providence of God. And that's what we're thinking about today. It's going to take a few minutes to think about God's providence. Now, I want you to kind of try to think with me a little bit. I want you to pretend that you're meeting somebody Uh, that you've maybe never met before. Maybe you're talking to a waitress in a restaurant and she's watched you pray before your meal. And she says, you know, we're not very busy right now. I want to ask you a question. Is that okay? And you say, sure. And she said, well, I heard somebody talking the other day about the providence of God. And I had no clue what they were talking about. Could you enlighten me? What are they talking about when they say the providence of God? Now, you might want to pause the video right now and just think about that for a minute. What comes to your mind? What kind of things? I mean, you don't have to give a technical definition, but just some thoughts that come to your mind. Maybe give that a little thought. And and there's no wrong answer here. I'm not looking, like I said, for a technical definition here. Just some thoughts about the providence of God. Well, here's a possible definition of divine providence. It may not be the best one that could be put together, but divine providence refers to the way that our loving Father guides and directs and controls everything, everything that happens in all of his creation. And in particular, everything that happens in our lives. Ultimately, we know that things don't just happen by sheer chance. God really is in control. Now, we don't always understand what he's doing, and sometimes we can't see what he's doing. Many times we cannot see what he's doing. But he is always at work. He's engineering the circumstances in our lives. Things are never out of control. (laughs) They may feel to us that they're out of control. But from God's perspective, no, they're never out of control. And we saw an incredible example of that in the life of Joseph last week. You remember? And and one of the... (laughs) One of the key verses we looked at then, and it's a beautiful verse to talk about the providence of God, is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things. It's a beautiful description of God's providence. And the providence of God is just one of many, many things about God that when we try to meditate on what it means and what it implies, it just really blows our minds. I mean, you know, when we first maybe just say briefly, you believe in God's providence, oh, yeah, 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 God's in control of everything. But but we may not think about what that implies. I mean, how does God do that? Have you ever thought about that? Think about the million billions of people all over the world and they're all doing things every day and they're making decisions i mean think about the tons of different decisions we make every one of us every day some very very small some pretty significant but somehow god is engineering this process god's staying in control of all of it and his providence means that in the long run and we christians have to learn to think in the long run right We can't be short-sighted like the rest of the world. In the long run, God even causes wicked things, sinful things, evil things to work together for our good. And it's not saying those things in themselves are good, but God causes them to work together for our good. Even Satan can't stop this. 
Have you thought about that? I believe part of Satan's own punishment is that even though he has this irrational rage and hatred toward God and, and, and toward the people of God, God continually frustrates Satan at every point. And so now the only way Satan has of hurting God is by going after us, right? He, he tempts us to sin, and God allows that to happen. You realize that, right? But no matter what he does to try to cause us to stumble, to try to tempt us to sin, God says, I'm going to eventually use that. I'm going to use it against Satan. He's using Satan as opposition for us to prepare us for eternity, to overcome. You see, we're overcomers. We're, we have a, a struggle here that we're involved in. We've got to stay in that battle. And God's going to make sure that he causes it all to work out for our good. So how does he do that? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it just blows my mind to think about God's providence. So anyway, with that mind-blowing thought, I want us to look at some scripture passages today. And the first one is in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians is one of Paul's letters that we call the, the prison epistles. You, you, you heard of that phrase before, the prison epistles. It simply means he wrote them from prison. It was his first imprisonment in Rome. He wrote Ephesians there and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. He was under house arrest that first time. He was imprisoned again later and beheaded, but this is probably, this is early around 60 or 61 AD, maybe. He was eventually released. But Colossae was an ancient city, not far from Laodicea in the Roman province called Asia. Uh, here's a map of Paul's journeys, and you can see Rome here, and then here's Asia Minor. Uh, this whole region here is called Asia Minor. We, we call it Turkey today, but you'll notice that there's a Roman province called Asia over there in the western part of Asia Minor. You see it there? It's easy to confuse Asia Minor with the province of Asia, obviously, but they're two different things. Asia Minor has the province of Asia inside it. The province of Asia is over on the western part of Asia Minor. They're not the same. It was a Roman province. And in the Bible, when it says Asia, usually it's talking about this Roman province. Now, I want us to zoom in there on Asia Minor, and you can see the city of Colossae there. It's only about nine miles down the road from Laodicea. You probably remember Laodicea from reading Revelation. Remember there in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gave John some letters for each of these seven churches, and Laodicea had a horrifying letter. You remember in chapter 3. I like for us to look at maps like this from time to time just to kind of keep ourselves anchored. It reminds us that we're not just reading stories that somebody made up. We're talking about historical events. These are real places that, that are on the earth, and these are real events that took place in real time, you know, real history. It's not some kind of fabrication or myth. And I think when we look at the maps and think about the dates, it helps us anchor that a little bit. But Paul begins this letter to the Colossians with a brief introduction, very common for Paul. But in this introduction, he, he greets them and then he expresses his gratitude for them because they've been very faithful and he's heard about their faithfulness. The next part of chapter 1 contains a wonderful, wonderful prayer. Of course, it's a prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians, but it's also inspired by the Holy Spirit. We know that because it's part of Scripture, right? So this is a wonderful prayer for us to be praying today. In the confusing days we're living, I think as we look at it, you'll agree, this is an awesome prayer for us. A little over five years ago, I think it was February 2016, there were a few men who agreed to meet with me in our living room each Saturday morning at 6 o'clock in the morning for prayer on Saturday morning. We're still meeting, some of us are. And, and our primary prayer request was for wisdom. And it was because of what was happening in our culture. We realized things were happening that were very confusing and so as we prayed, we quickly decided this passage would be a great theme passage for our prayer group. And so some of us memorize it, but it's an incredible prayer. And we're going to pick it up in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, when he says the day we heard, he's talking about the day he heard about their faithfulness, the day he heard about the fruit that the gospel is bearing there in Colossae. And he's excited about that and he's praying for them now. Pay really close attention to this prayer and see if you don't agree. It's an especially good prayer for these confusing times we're living in today. Because if we're going to stand firm, and that's the name of our class, standing firm, if we're going to truly stand firm, 
we're going to need God's wisdom. We can't do it in our own strength. We need God's strength and God's wisdom. And if you ever wondered what's a really good way to pray for God's wisdom, I just don't think you could come up with a better prayer than this one. It's wonderful. It's spirit-inspired. And it's really worth memorizing, guys. Look at this. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I mean, we could stop right there and say, okay, that's the end. <laughs> that would be a powerful prayer. But He's not done. Verse 10. So as to, in other words, when we get full of God's wisdom, this is what's going to happen. In other words, he's saying, in order that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. When he prays that they will bear fruit in every good work. I think our mind ought to go back to what Jesus said in John 15. You remember that famous passage where Jesus said, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can't bear fruit apart from me. You remember that? Let's look at it. John 15, he says in verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, that makes sense. You can't have a great branch laying over there on the ground bearing fruit unless it abides in the vine Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I, Jesus said, am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, so Paul is praying that they will have God's wisdom so that they can live lives that are pleasing to God and so that God can produce fruit through them that will, of course, bring God glory. Now, isn't that what we all want, really? I mean, if you're, if you're one of God's kids, that's what we want, isn't it? We realize we've got an awesomely wonderful Father, God, our Father, through Jesus. And we know that anything good that happens on this earth, anything good that happens in my life, He's the cause of it. And so we offer ourselves to Him so that He can use us to produce fruit. And some good things can happen. And he can get glory through us. Not us. We don't need that glory. Even if people brag on us or tell us good things about ourselves, we need to always remember, wait, it's not really me. It's this God doing this. I'm just a branch. <laughs> He's the vine. He's producing the fruit. But this is a wonderful prayer for all of us, especially in these confusing days. But he's still not done. Let's go on. Verse 11. He prays for their strength. Look at this. May you be strengthened. We need that, don't we, today? May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. <laughs> and then, you know, He's reminding us we're sharing now in the saints in light and He wants us to understand how that came to be. So He's going to Elaborate on that just a little bit. So let's go further. So in verse 13, he's saying, he's delivered you from this domain of darkness. You get this inheritance of light because he's delivered you from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see what he's saying there? He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where we once all lived. You realize that, right? Because we're descendants of Adam. We're all born into a kingdom of darkness. We're born in sin. But now we've been transferred into another kingdom. And it's a different kingdom. It's not darkness. It's light. <laughs> and I think here God's helping us create maybe a, a word picture in our minds to understand what he's teaching us. You know, you can picture it, can't you? Picture two kingdoms side by side. Over here's... Uh, a, a, a really dark kingdom ruled over by Satan. And then there's this high, massive, impenetrable wall. So they're totally separate kingdoms. And in one kingdom, it's, it's full of slaves and darkness. But the other kingdom is ruled by our loving, wise God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is full of light. And when we, when we found ourselves in his kingdom, we're, we have freedom and we're not slaves anymore. <laughs> 
we're slaves of God, but that's, that's, a, that's the freedom we're looking for. At one time in our lives, we were all in that dark kingdom. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to Satan. We're walking in darkness. We're blind. We're dead in our sins. And then what happened? In that darkness, the Holy Spirit came and convicted us of our sins. And he granted us faith and repentance. And Jesus came into our lives. And what he did is he lifted us out of that kingdom of darkness. He carried us over the wall and he placed us in his kingdom of light. And now we get to live in freedom in his wonderful kingdom of light. That's what Paul's teaching us here. So we're no longer slaves of Satan. Now, that doesn't mean we're in glory already. Uh, he's still around and he tries to get at us. And he, you can think of him maybe as shouting over the wall. If you want to think, use that picture, word picture. But, but he's tempting us. And he's trying to get us to realize, and from his perspective, he's trying to get us to realize, oh, there's a better way to live than God's way. Oh, you'll have more fun doing this. Oh, don't you think you'd enjoy this? And he keeps throwing these temptations in our way. And so we have to resist him. We have to fight him. Ephesians 6 makes that very clear. We're no longer slaves, though. We've been delivered from his domain, and we've been given victory over him. So it's true Satan can still tempt us, and he shoots fiery arrows at us. And Ephesians 6 teaches us that. But we've been set free from slavery to him. In Christ, we're no longer part of Satan's dominion. We don't have to listen to him. You realize that? We don't have to submit to Satan anymore. God's given us weapons to fight him and to enjoy victory over Satan and to stand firm. Now, <laughs> the passage that begins in the next verse at Colossians 1.15 and goes through verse 17 is one of the focal passages for our Bible study today. Before we look at it, let me just ask you, have you ever heard a term that's used sometimes when people are talking about the Bible and church history called oral creeds? Oral, O-R-A-L, oral creeds, as in spoken creeds that were in the early church? I don't know if you thought about this or not, but the New Testament well, the first book of the New Testament was written probably around 45 A.D. That was probably the book of James. I personally believe Galatians was probably written maybe a short time after that, maybe 49 A.D., somewhere in there. Gospel of Mark was also written very early. But still, that's roughly 15 or 20 years after Jesus had died and risen from the dead before the church had any of the written New Testament. Now, of course, they had the preaching of the apostles, and these guys were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and to his death and to his resurrection, and they were telling everybody as eyewitnesses what they had seen and what they had heard and what they knew to be true, but the people at that point didn't have any written New Testament. They wouldn't have a complete New Testament until nearly the end of the first century. That's when John wrote his three letters in Revelation. But during those very early years in the church, it seems that what the Holy Spirit did as he would give the people of God, the church, bits and pieces of what would be scripture later on so these early Christians could memorize it and recite it in their worship services and in their prayers maybe, and maybe when they were encouraging each other or, or maybe when they were doing the work of evangelism and telling others about Jesus, they had these little oral creeds that they would recite from memory. And we know they're inspired by God because they're recorded in our New Testament. It's a part of God's word. For example, we find one of them in Romans chapter 10. You can imagine how powerful this would be. We still use this, by the way, when we're telling others about Jesus. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That was an oral creed. And it's just as powerful now as it was then. But they were using that most likely long before the scriptures were written down. New Testament scriptures. So they shared Christ with their friends. They would just quote what we call Romans 10, 9, and 10. There's another one, 1 Corinthians 15, that's very powerful, where Paul said, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, that's Simon Peter, and then to the twelve. That was an oral creed. Well, there's another one of those oral creeds right here in what we're looking at today in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. So listen very carefully because this tells us something really, really important about Jesus. He, speaking of Jesus, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, this is a very powerful passage of Scripture. It's one of the many, many passages of Scripture that teach us that Jesus is truly God. He's fully God as well as fully man. When we study the Bible closely, we realize God's revealed Himself to exist in three persons. He is one God, but He reveals Himself to exist as Father, God the Father, and Son, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three are not three gods, one God but he reveals himself to exist as three persons. Three persons, one God. Can you understand that? I can't either. <laughs> we just accept it as truth revealed by God to us in his word. Someday, maybe, when we get in glory, maybe we'll understand it better. A lot of well-meaning people, and, and I'm not trying to say these people are trying to deceive people, but a lot of well-meaning people have tried to come up with analogies to the Trinity but some of these analogies really are pretty misleading, and they, they can make us think of the Trinity in the wrong way. There's probably no analogy at all that any man could ever come up with that would actually help us understand the Trinity because God's just too big for our analogies. That makes sense, doesn't it? But I've heard people say, for example, Trinity's kind of like a man who happens to be a father sometimes, but, but, but he's also a son, and, and, and maybe he's a husband, and maybe he's also an employee, so he has these different roles that he plays. But that's not really the way God exists. That's not the Trinity. That would be like one person who just changes roles from time to time. But God is three persons who exist at the same time. Some others say something similar. They say, well, the Trinity is kind of like water. Sometimes it's steam. Sometimes it's liquid. Sometimes it's solid as ice. But again, that's a false picture. We call that false picture uh, modalism. The theologians call it modalism, M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. It's, it's one thing, water, or theologically speaking, it would be God, but he's just changing his modes from time to time, you see. Sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. But that's not the way God exists. He exists as one God, three persons, all the time. I've heard others say, well, the Trinity is kind of like an egg. It has a shell, and it has an egg white, and it has a yolk. But that's not a good illustration, because that would make God three gods. You know, those are like three separate things. They're not, they're not at all the same. So the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches Jesus is both fully man and fully God. It teaches the Holy Spirit is fully God. Of course, God the Father is fully God. They're the same God, but they're three persons. And there's no analogy that can quite fit. I will, I will take a real gamble here, a risk. I probably shouldn't say this, and sometime, someday I may decide to rebuke myself for even sharing this kind of thing. But I think it may be a little closer to the truth, in my mind anyway, but it's my little finite brain trying to wrap around this. So let's pretend for just a minute, as you watch this, that you and I are both omniscient, as God is. Okay, So everything that you know, I know, because we both know everything there is to know, which means everything in your mind, I know, and everything in my mind, you know, <laughs> And suppose we're in total agreement. We're in complete, perfect agreement. In a sense, you could say, well, that sounds like one being, doesn't it? Even though we're two different persons. But even that analogy, I don't think any analogy is really going to work. Our little brains just can't wrap around the fact that God is one God and three persons. But here in verse 16, he couldn't be more clear in the truth about Jesus. He is God. For by him, all things were created. And then he just emphasizes, I'm not just talking about physical things. He said, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then verse 17, he underlines it. He is before all things. That means he's God. And in him, all things hold together. Now that's important too. He gives us a little bit more about Jesus here, a little bit more information, a little bit more revelation. Jesus is the one who keeps this universe from flying apart. You see that? In him, all things hold together. 
And Jesus is the one that keeps the lives of his people from falling apart too. He keeps our lives together. He's not just a creator God who fires up this incredibly awesome, beautiful, complex creation that we live in. And then he just goes away and leaves it alone. That, by the way, is what the deists teach. You've heard of deists. They believe in God, but they don't believe he's involved in our lives. But God is involved in our lives. He's involved in all of his creation. He's the one holding it all together. So Jesus is clearly the creator. He's not a created being. Remind us a little bit of what John the Apostle wrote in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In other words, that, that kind of hints at the Trinity there. It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here. But how can you be both God and with God? Well, because God the Father is God, God the Son is God, two persons one God, he is God, and he's with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. He's repeating what Paul said there in Colossians. All things were made by him, and without, without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is clearly not created. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was not created. If Jesus had been created, verse 3 would be false. You understand that? It's very important. To emphasize his deity a little bit later in chapter 10, John records this event. Jesus said to the Jews, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Why were they going to stone him? Well, Jesus asked them that question too. And they clearly answered it in verse 33. They knew what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? <laughs> and the Jews answered, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood very clearly what he was saying. He was claiming to be God, because he is God. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1 says this, But of the Son, he says, talking about Jesus, the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. God the Son is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Paul wrote this to Titus, looking for that blessed hope. He's talking about Jesus coming back again, the blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, clearly, fully God. It may trouble some of you when you see in verse 15 that it says he was the image of the invisible God. And you say, wait a minute, that image, that doesn't sound like maybe fully God. That sounds like a picture of God or something, something less than God. Maybe it's just a picture. Maybe it's just an image that's somehow less than God. And what we have to do here is a little bit of Greek study because the word image, it's the Greek word is icon, and it's certainly a common and literal translation of the Greek word icon. But, it came to mean in the Greek also something that we might use the word manifestation to describe. Uh, the idea would be this. God is spirit. And so he's invisible to our physical eyes. You cannot physically see Jesus. But Jesus really is God manifested in the flesh. He is the image of God. We couldn't see God if Jesus had manifested himself in the flesh. So that means he's the image. He's a manifestation of God. Now he has eyewitnesses. Now he's visible. So he's this image. He's the manifestation of the invisible God in visible form. Another word that can cause problems in verse 15 is the word firstborn. Because when we hear that word firstborn, we think, okay, that means the oldest son. He's the firstborn. But that means there was a time before he was born. If he was born at all, it was a time before he was born. And so we may think, well, somehow he's a being less than God that came into being but is not eternal. But again, the Greek word which translates into our English firstborn, prototokos, was used to indicate the eldest son at times, but partly because of that, it came to have a bigger meaning. It came to mean the most important person or the one who is highest in rank or the one who has dominion. So you can see how that happened because in the, in the Bible times, it was common for the oldest son to be the most important and the highest in rank and have dominion over the rest of the family under the father. So people will confuse that. Jehovah's Witnesses are a classic example of people who confuse that. They will try to use this verse to try to prove that Jesus is less than God. 
They believe, by the way, that Jesus is just an exalted angel. In fact, they believe he's the same one who's called the archangel Michael in the Old Testament. They believe he was created at the same time Lucifer was created. So he's not eternal God. Lucifer, of course, became the devil. And so when they come to this verse, they're trying to appeal to this idea of firstborn. They say, well, if he was firstborn, he must have had a beginning at some point, And he began at the same time Lucifer did. So it, they're just... They're ignoring the, 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 the full meaning of this word, firstborn, and they're also ignoring a whole lot of other scriptures. It's just amazing how they try to explain so many clear scriptures away. Several years ago, I had an interesting experience over a period of months. Uh, there were some Jehovah's Witnesses that came to my door one day, and I was home alone, but I had a little time, and I thought, well, maybe the Lord will choose to use me to help them see some of his truth. <laughs> So I invited them in, praying in my heart that God would use me. And we spent some time. They questioned me, and I questioned them. We talked, and, and I tried really hard to be very gracious and loving and kind to them, and I think they appreciated that. I think they're used to being treated kind of rudely by a lot of us. But, but they stayed maybe an hour or so, and then they finally felt like they had to leave. And as they got up to leave, obviously nobody changed their minds, but I said, if you want to talk some more about this, I'll be glad to talk. You can come back. Well, they were kind of surprised, and they said, sure. And then so over a period of months, they came back to visit me almost every week. And over a period of time, I began to think of them as friends, lost friends, but friends. I liked them. You know what I'm saying? They were people. But it was so sad to see how they would foolishly try to explain away God's clear word. They felt so certain about things. It seemed so almost silly the way they would interpret it. I remember at one point I was trying to point out that, you know what? One thing that, that makes, us, makes it clear that Jesus is God is he receives worship. You know, men are not allowed to receive worship. That would be a horrible sin for any man to try to receive worship. Herod tried it and he died. And, and angels are forbidden to receive worship too. But God only can receive worship, and Jesus receives worship. And one of the women in the group, I thought this was fascinating, one of the women in the, in the group said, that's a good point. And the others kind of frowned at her and said, no, uh, we got an explanation for that. <laughs> and and here's, here's what they did. I'm not kidding. This is the way they told me anyway. They said, the word that translated worship can mean a simple greeting, depending on the context, and they said, when you're talking about God the Father, that word worship obviously means worship. But if it's directed to the Son, it just means a greeting, that's all. Now, they were just arbitrarily making up that change in definition because they didn't want to say that Jesus was God. You remember when John almost worshipped an angel? It's recorded a couple of times in Revelation, but in chapter 22, verse 80 says this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. You see that? I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. <laughs> I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. He said, don't you dare worship me. I'm just a created angel. Worship God. But Jesus never, ever told people, don't you dare worship me. No, he accepted worship. Why? Because he's God. He deserves worship. Worship belongs to God alone. We worship Jesus because he's God. <laughs> so simple. Now, I'm, I'm interrupting myself here. I believe that this is where we ended in class. I didn't make a note, so I'm not 100% sure. But I think this is as far as we got in class when we add the discussion to it and everything. We were out of time. So if you were in the class on Sunday morning, this is the place where you'd pick up the the audio or the video so you can uh, continue the study. Okay, this is an interruption of the original Bible study on Providence. After I'd finished that original Bible study, I thought it would be a shame to do a study like this and not give at least a few examples, illustrations of God's providence. So I decided to insert this into the study. And I decided to do it here because this is where I ended the class yesterday. So you get the picture here, this is an interruption. But the problem is, it's hard to give quick examples because God's providence involves so many details that when we share some of the details to illustrate the amazing providence of God, it usually takes some time just to communicate those details. So there's a trade-off here, unfortunately. Let me give you a couple of examples. So you remember Esther? 
in the Bible. Think about how many details God had to arrange in her life and in people all around her, all these details, to make sure that Esther was exactly where she needed to be, exactly when she needed to be there to rescue the Jewish people under the reign of Ahasuerus. I think one of the reasons Esther is in our Bible is to show us the amazing providence of God. It's worth rereading, thinking about God's providence. You remember Cyrus the Great? There's no way for us to know the number of details that God had to work into his life and into, to, to make him the kind of man that he was and also in the lives of others around him. I mean, we're talking about world empires at this time. But there he was in a position to conquer the most powerful kingdom the world had ever seen to that point, the Babylonian Empire. And then he had such a mindset that he let the Jewish captives go free. He was the one that allowed them to return back to the promised land. That's the providence of God. Let me share a little more recent one from American history. I bet some of you are familiar with this. Do you remember an American Indian named Squanto? In 1620, the first pilgrims to America would simply have starved to death if it had not been for God's providential care through Squanto. Do you remember any of Squanto's story? It's fascinating, and we don't know all the details. But in the year 1614, he was kidnapped by an English explorer named Thomas Hunt, who took him across the Atlantic Ocean back to Europe. He was going to sell him as a slave, sold him in Spain. You know who bought him? A group of Christian monks who educated him and taught him about Jesus. <laughs> well, eventually he made it to England. And from there, he, learning, he learned how to speak English. And then he was taken back to Newfoundland. Finally made his way back to Massachusetts, his homeland. He's looking for his people. When he got there, he discovered that his people had been totally wiped out by disease that had been brought over from Europe with the, with the Europeans. So there he is. He's all alone without his people. And in 1620, God providentially brought him into the settlement where the pilgrims were on the verge of starvation and they would not have survived without him. Clearly, William Bradford said he was a special instrument sent from God for their good beyond their expectation. He taught them how to grow crops. He taught them how to find eels by stomping in the mud. He taught them how to do fur trading. He spoke English so he could serve as a translator between the pilgrims and other nearby Indians. And he served as their guide until his death in 1622. We cannot begin to imagine how unlikely all these events would have happened even in our day much less in those days with such primitive transportation and communication. Isn't that amazing? That kind of thing doesn't happen by sheer chance. It's the providence of God. Let me share one more illustration, personal example. In 1957, my grandpa Payne led me to the Lord. I was 10 years old, and it was in his home in Florida. And he, as he shared the scriptures with me, he used a great big old family Bible that he and my grandma owned, to show me and tell me how to become a Christian. In those days, it was pretty common for families to have a huge family Bible, and they kept all the birth records and marriage records and death records there in that family Bible. But like I said, I was 10 years old, 1957. Now, I'm not sure how long they'd had that Bible, but I never thought of it again. They eventually moved from Florida back to Tennessee, where they had lived originally, they eventually moved back to Florida and then back to Tennessee. And while they were in Florida and while they were in Tennessee, they moved several times to several different homes. And as they grew older, they eventually sold the home they were living in at that time to one of their daughters. She was my aunt, of course. And eventually my grandparents died. And so did my aunt. And that home that they had lived in went to her only son, one of my cousins. He used the home as collateral to borrow as much money as he could on the home, and then he allowed the home to go into foreclosure. He lived in another state. He did not live in Tennessee. And he came one time back to the home to move out some of the furnishings and things. But when we learned it had gone into foreclosure, we learned it by a gentleman, a man we did not know at all, from the company who had foreclosed on it. But since we lived next door, he thought we might be interested in purchasing it. So he just knocked on our door and introduced himself and told us all about it. Well, it turned out that we were able to purchase the little house. That was in 2009. And we went down and looked at the little house and it was still pretty junked up. 
There were lots of plastic grocery bags lying on the floors throughout the house. It wasn't fixed up at all. Uh, and as we were looking through the house and when one of the empty bedrooms, several of those plastic bags just strewn across the floor like trash on the floor, I mindlessly kind of swept my foot at one of the bags and realized it wasn't empty. <laughs> there was something in it. And I looked inside and you know what was there, that old family Bible that my grandpa had used to lead me to the Lord. And I thought, how did this happen? It's amazing. How did this happen? In 1957, it had come into my life in a very powerful way. And then it had been gone from my life for 52 years. And here it was, after a chain of very unlikely events, really, that took place over a half a century. And there it is, lying on the floor, right in front of me. Now, that may seem like a small thing to you. And, and I guess compared to the great events of history, it is. But it's the providence of God. All right, let's go back to the original study. So let's read on here in verse 18. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, listen carefully, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 19 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the word fullness implies the complete totality of God. He is fully God. By the way, to underline this, he repeats it in chapter 2. God underlines things by repeating them sometimes. And in chapter 2, he says, For in him, in Jesus, dwells not just some, but all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, fully God. So Jesus is God, and as God, as he's made it clear, he's holding all things together in his universe. This is providence. The next focal passage in the Old Testament is Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is a powerful psalm of praise and worship. It's written by King David. And it begins with a very, very familiar words. Many of us have quoted these words many times. There are songs that use these words. And the first words of Psalm 103 are actually a call to worship. But as I read it, I realize I'm calling someone to worship and the someone is me. <laughs> I'm calling myself to worship God. It's a beautiful passage. Look at this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now let's skip on down to verse 11. It's another wonderful familiar passage, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He loves us. He knows how weak we are. He's the one who made us. And because of Jesus and his great love, he forgives our sins. He removes our transgressions and separates us, them from us. And it's just a beautiful psalm, isn't it? Now, the focal passage picks up at verse 15, but I couldn't resist reading those earlier verses. Listen, verse 15. As for men, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And his place knows it no more. But, listen, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That's providence. God's providence is at work. So he's making the point in verse 15 that we're all in physical bodies. They will soon pass away like wildflowers. They're very beautiful for a brief time. Then they pass away. They're gone. Our bodies are the same way. 
In verse 17, he reminds us that the Lord's continuing love for us continues from everlasting to everlasting, forever, from eternity past to eternity future. He will always love us. He loved us before we were born. He loved us in eternity past, and he loves us now, and he will continue to love us if we're in him because we're going to live with him forever. His love is eternal. And in verse 19, we see in this passage this clear connection to God's providence. He's the Lord. He's the king. He has a throne. It's established in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over everything, over all. He's actively involved in his creation. He's tending it. He's ruling over it. He's in control of it. He's not just ruling over part of it. He's ruling over all of it. That should give us great comfort. Because when I'm in a situation that seems impossible, and we'll get there from time to time, don't we? You've been there, haven't you? You find yourself thinking, maybe even thinking or tempted to say, God, where are you? <laughs> what's going on? Don't you see what's happening here? <laughs> do, do you care? Do you, do you even know? Are you even here? You know, tempt, Satan would like to tempt us to feel like that because our feelings will lead us astray. And sometimes we feel that way. But of course, you know the answer. Yes, he's here. I'm part of his kingdom. And his kingdom rules over all. He's ruling over this situation. It may seem awful to me at the moment, but God's got it under control. So important. It may seem totally out of control from our perspective, but it isn't. And I can continue to thank God for his providential care. Even when I can't see him working in my immediate situation at the moment. He is working whether I see it or not. You see, we got we to gotta know that. That's true. This is God's word. The time will come when I'll understand it better. Now, that's where the focal passage for today ended in Psalm 103. But again, this is such an awesome psalm. We need to at least finish it here. <laughs> he began this psalm with a call to worship that we used to call ourselves to worship. And he concludes it with a call for the angels to worship him. And then for all creation to join us in worshiping the Lord. Let's just read it. Verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels. You mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works. That's all the creation. In all places of his dominion. That's all creation. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. <laughs> that makes you weep, doesn't it? It's a wonderful call to worship. To worship the God who is ruling providentially over all his creation. There's one more focal passage for this Bible study. It's in Matthew chapter 6. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 have the Sermon on the Mount. But, but let me just tell you, if you, like me, have a tendency to fall into the sin of worrying about things, sometimes I do have that problem, guys. I have that temptation, and sometimes I fail there. This is a powerful passage. If you talk with my wife, Vicki, and I just freely confess, not gladly, I don't gladly confess, but I freely confess. <laughs> and Vicki will confirm this. Satan often attacks me with worry and with anxiety and fear. It's been a lifelong point of satanic attack in my life. You know, he attacks different ones of us different ways. Some of us he attacks the same ways, similar ways. You know, many of us are attacked with temptations to lose our temper and get angry maybe go into a rage. Some people feel like that's just the way they're wired. I've heard people say, it's just who I am. It's not who you are. It's what you choose to do. But Satan is tempting you and making you feel like it's who you are. Some of us have temptations to, to lie, to tell lies. Some of us just, it seems like lies pour out of our lips so easily. Some of us, of course, get hit, attacked with all kinds of sexual temptations. There are all kinds of temptations, but he likes to tempt me with temptations to worry, especially. I'm not saying I'm exempt from the others either, but, but especially to worry. And when I was a young man, it was so strong that there were actually times when I was very young. I mean, not a kid, a young man, but in my early 20s, I guess. And it, it just seemed like at that point in time that maybe death was a better option than life. Maybe my late teens. I better be careful about the time there. But I remember feeling that sometimes. Just, I, I just wanted to die. I didn't really come close to killing myself, but the thoughts went through my mind that maybe that would be better. That's a lie, of course. It's a lie from the devil. He lies to a lot of people that way. I know I'm not alone here, but he really worked me over with this stuff. Finally, someone encouraged me to memorize some of the really powerful piece of God verses, passages from the Bible. And that's what I began to do. I wrote them down on some note cards, carried them in my shirt pocket, and I would just 
pull them out and go over them 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 until they were part of me. Verses like, peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Jesus said these words, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's powerful. When you get it memorized, it becomes part of you. How about this one? A little bit later, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So powerful. John 16, 33. And then this wonderful passage from Isaiah 26. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Perfect peace. God gives it to us. How about this one from Philippians? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And I would just quote those verses over and over and over and over, even when I wasn't worried at the moment because I wanted them to become a part of me. And gradually they became a part of me. And so when the hints of worry would start to sneak back in, I could go back to those scriptures. The Holy Spirit could bring them to mind. I could find God's peace. But that didn't mean that battle was all over. <laughs> I mean, it's still going on. Satan will still tempt me. A few years ago, uh, Vicki and I, after a lot of prayer and discussion, decided it was time for me to get out of the public school system. She was the instigator of the thought, actually, but I quickly thought she's right. And so I agreed with her, and we went through the process, and I eventually retired from public school teaching. Well, you can imagine what happened, can't you? You're probably ahead of me here, but Satan began to beat me up with worry and anxiety. Things like, you've gotten ahead of God here. You're not going to be able to pay all your bills. You really messed up big time. That was a very foolish decision, and he tried to work me over with it. And one day, while I was struggling with this in my prayer time, God brought me back to Matthew 6. I'd memorized it years before, and he said basically to my heart, and I felt like God was saying to my heart, you got to rememorize this, and you got to make sure you really internalize it, because this is going to give you the peace you need. <laughs> and this passage reminded me so powerfully of God's providential care, and the obvious truth that I just don't have anything to worry about. I really don't. I need to make wise decisions, but there's no need to worry when things seem a little weird to me, or a little difficult, or confusing, or whatever. Look at this. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. <laughs> I, I teach a Dave Ramsey personal finance course at Cross Creek, and one of the things I try to tell the kids over and over and over is to watch out for money. Uh, whatever money you have, some of us have a lot, some of us have very little, but it's a blessing from God, and it's a valuable resource if we will see it as a tool and a servant, and we can use it to bring glory to the Lord. Ultimately, we need to remind ourselves quite often, it doesn't belong to me anyway. It all belongs to God, right? We're just stewards for a while of some stuff. So it's a wonderful resource, and it can be a wonderful blessing, but it makes a terrible God. Have you heard that before? And way too many people make it into a God. And if they have it, they think that's the source of my security. And they worship it. They may not bow down to it, but that's practically they do. They may see it as the thing that's actually protecting them in life. That's their God. It's the thing that's giving them security. If they don't have it, they may panic and fear and worry because they don't have it. What am I going to do? That's their God. Well, Jesus is saying, you're going to have to choose. You can worship the true God and use money, or you can worship money and try to use God to get it for you. <laughs> That's what the prosperity gospel movement does. You understand that, right? They're really worshiping money and themselves, and they're wanting God to be a source that'll give them what they really want, which is not God, it's money, a <laughs> good life. Anyway, verse, verse 25, therefore I say unto you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Isn't life more than food and the body than clothing? Consider the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? 
And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to a stature? It might be good here just to stop for a second and say, God, of course, is the one who created those birds, right? We love the birds, and God created them, and He engineered them. And they're to be an example for us to trust God. They're not worried about anything. They don't sow. They don't read. They don't gather into barns like God said. But they do work. <laughs> they work pretty hard, you notice? I mean, you don't see birds just sitting around on the power line with their beaks to the sky waiting for God to drop a worm in their mouth. <laughs> no, they're working. They're, they have to go looking for food, but God provides the food for them. They just do what God created them to do. They work. They sing. They bring glory to God. They, I believe they're a delight and joy to God. They're a delight and joy to us too. And they teach us a wonderful lesson about God's providential care. If he cares for the birds, surely he'll care for us. Verse 28, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his splendor was not arrayed like one of these. Therefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. <laughs> Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or with what shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. But your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow shall worry about the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. <laughs> Isn't that powerful? I mean, God's just warning us here very clearly. If you worry, at least at that moment, you're not trusting God. If we're truly trusting God, we realize we don't have anything to worry about. <laughs> so we have to decide what's it going to be. Are we going to trust God or not? God is graciously, sovereignly, powerfully, eternally, providentially, there's the word, ruling over our lives. We have nothing to fear. So once again, let's go back and think about Joseph from last week. When he was in the pit, it seemed hopeless. But he had nothing to fear. When he was sold as a slave, it seemed hopeless. But he had nothing to fear. When he was falsely accused of attempted rape, and as a foreign slave, no rights, no one to represent him, seemed hopeless. But he had nothing to fear. When he wound up in a horrible prison in a strange land, seemed pretty hopeless, but he had nothing to fear. God was providentially in control of his life. And when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, and we will, we need fear no evil because he is with us and he will be with us all the way and he will providentially see us through every trial until we arrive safely at home with him. That's good news. Let's have his peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you providentially rule over all your creation and over each of our lives. You're God and you're in control and we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, nothing to be anxious about. Even when we don't understand, Lord, even when our feelings get begin to get a little in turmoil and even when we look around us and things don't look so good, you still have everything under control. So thank you for re reassuring us of these truths this morning. We thank you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, God the Son, came and died on that cross and rose again, conquering death and hell and Satan and the grave, at least in part so that we would have peace, peace with God, peace of God, and not have to worry or be afraid anymore. Thank you that you are God. Thank you, Father, for making these things so clear in your word. We know we have a real enemy, and we know he lies to us a lot, and he's very deceptive, and he's very clever. But Lord, forgive us when we get our eyes off of you and onto our circumstances. Help us instead to focus on you all the time, concentrate on you, and bless you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind to glorify and worship you, and let you produce fruit through us as only you can. And, and, and one day, Lord, we know that to the extent we trusted you and focused on you and waited on you, we certainly had nothing to worry about 
and we will certainly have no regrets. So we praise you for this truth. And we praise you for our Lord Jesus in his mighty name. Amen.